1: Hi, I'm Paddy from Glasgow, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is I heard on BBC More or Less programme that one in ten people in the UK are planning to start a podcast in 2022. Do you and Howard think there is still room in the podcast market? Okay, here comes the show, and remember,
2: question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello and a mix of very special guests posed the questions that need to be asked and we are talking everything from
1: well we're talking everything from Paddy from Glasgow's question directed sounded like to me it's quite frightening Dane is there any room left in the podcast market for more podcasts um <laughs> <laughs> do you like us Paddy <laughs> Paddy what can I tell you mate uh, I'm not doing a spin-off if that's what you're wondering uh, that's not gonna happen um look look. The the reality is on any market there's not really much room for anything <laughs> but then I mean, some things happen and they're good and people enjoy them and that's and that's that's markets isn't it Dane like I never thought there'd be a need for more chocolate bars but here we are there's a yeah, new chocolate bar out
2: all, always away. and yeah and these days it's cocoa free or contains cacao I guess uh, the today's podcast is uh, yesterday's garage band and that you know due to the low barriers of entry and the willingness of people to have casual discussions with their friends and with the potential of being able to monetize said casual discussions, a lot of people are going to try and get into the podcast market. um I suppose in the same way that people were very big on, you know, Avon products or Tupperware. Like, mm. so I suppose the like, answer the most is markets, yes,
1: Paddy. The answer is there's, yes. there's, there's, there probably, is there's still room. room. There yeah, is still there's still
2: room. We live in a we, we should have a free market, and uh you know, it's all all voices are democratized in the digital world. So, give it a go. We'll, whether there's room for them all to go the distance, Paddy, is there the question. Go, mate. And go. I'd say not necessarily. So there's room for everyone to come into the world Well, there you board, go, please. Paddy.
1: That's a good answer for you, hopefully, mate. And uh, suffice to say, on this show, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dave?
2: Absolutely, no question is too saturated. To no question is too sparse. And if you like the show, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and you'll never miss an episode. Or subscribe to us on Acast, the world's biggest podcast network, where you can hear all the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a host, author, and pundit and also presents the Evening Show on LBC Radio. He was named Radio Presenter of the Year for 2013 and 2016 and was shortlisted for the Speech Program of the Year at the 2013 Sony Radio Awards. In 2014, he won a Sony Award for Best Interview of the Year. He is a regular columnist for The Telegraph, Evening Standard and iPaper and is a contributing editor for GQ magazine. He has two new books, Why Can We All Get Along, Shout Less, Listen More and... The Prime Minister's 1721 to 2020, 300 years of political leadership. A very accomplished polymath and opinionated gentleman. Please welcome to the show, Mr Ian Dale.
0: Thank you very much, Jane.
2: Welcome. My pleasure. How are when, you when, doing? When you,
0: when you were reading that out, I was thinking it's about time I won another reward, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think you're <laughs> there, you were aware about that. But we've had a pandemic, so things have slowed down. Uh, it's taken a while to come together. But no, it's, it's a very, very... Uh, very long list of accomplishments, so it's uh, we are very, very um, grateful for you coming on the show.
1: And uh, Ian, do you think there's enough podcasts, or do you, <laughs> is there room well, for more?
0: Given given that I host six podcasts, um, there probably is room for more, but not for me. I think six is quite quite sufficient.
2: Yeah, you need you need a day of rest. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I six think when podcasts. God made podcasts right. Even he took a rest, and so <laughs> Ian Dale should be able to rest if God can.
0: Well, the the, the thing is, I, I started off doing the For The Many podcast with Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary. That was like in 2017. And that became quite big fairly quickly. Um, and then I did an Edinburgh Fringe show called The Dale All Talk, where I just had a sort of c- celebrity or a politician guest and interviewed them, and then people asked questions. So we thought, well, we should put those out as podcasts. So there was 24 shows, so we did 24 podcasts, and it, that got good reception. So we thought, well, let's continue it. So I do a weekly interview podcast now, um, and a books one and a couple of others. Wow,
2: busy man. It's the podcast for every type of interest. I think it's more than fine. Um Yeah. Yeah, it's I all good.
1: I, I suppose the thing that people question is they just, you know, lots of people walk around saying I'm thinking of starting a podcast, and uh, I think that's what makes someone like Paddy write to us like that and go. He said, I think mean, he said that one in ten people are thinking about starting a podcast. Which...
0: Well, I think that the difficulty nowadays is that if you haven't got a media company backing you, it's actually quite difficult to get a really meaningful audience. Um, but that said, I've when I used to be a publisher. I'd say, you you don't have to sell thousands of copies of a book for it to be a good book. It can sell one copy and it still can be a good book, and it's the same with podcasts. I think if you've got some sort of niche interest in a podcast – Sort of like have a weekly bell ringing podcast or something like that. You yeah. you will be able to attract an audience. It yeah, might not exactly. be tens of thousands, but to that group of people, it's an, it will become an important part of their weekly routine. Yeah,
2: well yeah and, that's, and That's really what counts. I mean, it's it's really, if you're going to be all things to all people, what you need is to be a politician, not a podcaster. <laughs> you just want to say what people want to hear. <laughs> in my it's opinion, controversial. Well, it's probably
1: time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As the format of this show dictates.
2: Absolutely. Ian is our very esteemed guest. We welcome you to ask the first question. It could be any question you'd like, which we'd like to discuss for about 15 minutes or some change. And then Howard, I'd like to pose a question to, your, to you, which we discuss for the same amount of time. And then to dovetail the whole conversation in a unique twist, I'd like to pose a question to you, which we discuss for 15 minutes. And then we could, uh, uh, we'd be very grateful if you could tell our listeners more about your good works, where they can hear more from you. And also we can pressure panel to give you an overdue reward. Had
0: <laughs> <laughs> fantastic
2: and a floor a flawless
0: well, sort of first question. My my question is a bit of a cheeky one because it's also a book plug. Um, the, genius, title the Genius move. Yeah, mm-hmm. The title of the book that I wrote in 2020, which was completely um, scuppered by the pandemic because no bookshops were open when it was published, um, is called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? So that is the question I'm going to put to both of you. Why can't we all just get along? It's a great
1: question and worthy of a book title, right, Dane?
2: Really good question. Uh, We've hey, got to ask oh, the
1: obvious thing, though, right, which is, hey, you, you wrote this book. What what inspired it? I can't imagine. <laughs> I assume you're
2: Was it it a Rodney King quote? Uh, Did
0: it LAPD? No. What inspired me to write it? Well, two people inspired me to write it. Um, Emily Maitlis and Her Majesty the Queen, believe it or not. And it's all about how public discourse has deteriorated over the years. Now, there's always been a pretty aggressive public discourse in this country. If you go back to the... I don't know, 1800s, you look at the Hogarth cartoons of the House of Commons, There were really violent scenes and there were violent debates. But somehow, and I think this happened possibly mainly through, through the whole Brexit debate, we've got to a point where people don't accept that somebody else has even a right to hold a different opinion to them. And I think that's a real shame. If you don't accept that somebody has the right to hold a different opinion, how can you possibly argue with them? Because, I mean, I I run a talk show. That's what I do four nights a week. If I took the attitude that all my listeners were thick and stupid and had no right to hold an opinion, and I was so superior in that I would lecture them about my opinions, I don't think I'd have any listeners left. And it's the same in public discourse. People want to... You, I mean, a, a good debate is, is a good thing, but the level of debate recently, I think, has become very polarised. It's all about... There's no nuance. It's all about... Everything's black or white. You, you, you can't find any middle ground at all. And if you were a Brexiteer, you thought that Remainers were traitors who just wanted to um, subsume themselves in, in Brussels. And if you're a Remainer, you thought that most Brexiteers were thick or racist. Mm-hmm. And it's, it just it never was like that. But that became the narrative. And so the whole book is um, about why that's happened and sort of what what we can do about it. And it was really sparked off by the Queen's Christmas message in 2018, where she effectively said, look, why can't we all just get along? She didn't use those words, but that was the implication. Mm. And then Emily wrote, Maitlis wrote a book called Airhead, which is all about her experiences that she had had in broadcasting. Right. And I thought, well, I could combine the two things here. So it's partly autobiographical, but it's also about discourse.
1: But there's so many layers to it, aren't there? And 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 I, I think Dane will, will almost certainly <laughs> say something about the fact that I guess we've never really got along, but may, but it's just never been this obvious. <laughs>
2: well, you <laughs> yeah, too. I think, got along. I think I think we, we we may not have all gotten along as people necessarily. So we, we may have had stratification and division. But I agree with Ian is that it was never this intense. So for someone to have a differing opinion. They were never, you would, nowadays, someone with a differing opinion or maybe a detractor is now becomes an arch nemesis rather than, you know, someone with an opposing viewpoint. And we never used to be so rigid in how we were polarised. I would say the first reason we can't get along would be the how uh, social media has intensified human discourse. I think a lot of people fail to understand that, like, artificial intelligence does work along binary terms. The language of artificial intelligence is zero and one. And so it does appear to be two extremes. Whereas human discourse and consciousness doesn't necessarily work the same way. But as we keep trying to contextualize it along the, uh, I guess, narrative lines of uh, social media, it makes it very difficult to have discourse. And so more simply put, it's very hard for a human being to have effective discourse where they can consider someone else's point or be moderate when they're doing that within 140 to 180 characters with emojis. Mm. Like the human mind is a lot more expansive than being reduced to maybe 100 or so different faces to explain its moods. And also... That's
1: why when something... like You know, I'm not about to defend J.K. Rowling's views on transgender because I'm not So oh, really...
2: I'll, I'll, I'll happily defend her <laughs> views on transgender
1: if you <laughs> I'll want. i tell you why I'm not going to because I think that there's probably a very long conversation you can have about it and what she... By putting it on social media, I think she helps uh, kind of, you know, antagonise. <laughs> it's a great way to antagonise people. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, maybe, but what you're then saying is, and yeah, I don't want to get into that debate at all because that, that way, that way lies madness. <laughs> but I mean, what what you're saying is that you you say she should be censored or should she she should self-censor herself? Now we all self-censor to an extent, and and look, I've I've been in the middle of lots of Twitter spats mm. over the years, and that was actually part of the reason also for writing the book in that I realised that I was part of the problem. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um. And so I've I've tried to modify. Some of the things that I say on Twitter, but I think that's because we all modify such a spontaneous everything we do. Medium. But I
1: think we all modify yeah. everything we do to an extent, depending on our audiences. So let it, you know, use my wife as an example. Like you know, the, 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 if I had a real issue with her about something, I can tell you how I wouldn't send it to her on social media or in a text message. Like I'm not gonna like the last thing I ever need to do is send my wife an aggressive text message <laughs> complaining about how Look, the kitchen, bitch. the kitchen was yeah. in a right state. You know, like whereas what well, my best. Protocol. And Tara, you know that I have a problem with how messy the kitchen is, but this isn't why we're on this show today. But the, you leave the kitchen <laughs> in a mess and I'm not going to text the you about it. views of
2: Howard Cohen, do not reflect that. Are they back to his questions? Everything Dane, the podcast?
1: Welcome over to Witness. Anyway, the point being... <laughs> She's got child to raise, Howard. Yeah, but so do I. Anyway, the nuanced <laughs> conversation I can have with her about being a little bit cleaner around the kitchen and just like put the stuff in it, whatever it may be, is the, the, the way of communicating as humans. Like Dane's saying, we're not binary. It's not like here's this yeah. thing with no tone, no context. Yeah. It's just a message, and, you know. And that's the next
2: thing is that, uh, and again, I mean, I just, I, as I say, I, I still think that's probably one of the reasons why uh, polarization has become so much more intensified. Is a how how more reduced the opportunity for discussion and narrative is reduced on social media. The other issue I'd say is is uh, when we're trying to determine the uh, positions for debate, because again, the other problem with discussions that have place in take place in digital media is. You can't verify the disposition or the identity of the yeah. person you're debating with. Yeah. So, in, in going back to the example of J.K. Rowling, while of course there definitely will be members of the uh, transgender community who may be forming a united front or rebuttal to whatever platitudes J.K. Rowling has, but we don't necessarily know who's actually responding. And the problem with that can be sometimes is that. We don't always know who we are. So we're much more susceptible to agent provocateurs making a discussion become a yeah. lot more grave because we don't necessarily know who we're speaking to. So You're you absolutely have,
0: right on that. Yeah, you go to
2: groups that could be speaking and agent provocateurs can be causing that to basically stir in the pot.
0: I can remember one night, about quarter to one in the morning, I was in bed had the laptop on the pillow, and I was arguing with an egg who had three <laughs> followers over Brexit. Yeah. I'm thinking, what am I doing? This is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, because you have to learn from experience as a human being because you're like me. You take it from the right that If someone's engaging you with an argument, they're doing so from the position of a human being and just pro- projecting their platitudes onto social media when really it's the equivalent of if you went into a toilet cubicle and someone wrote, traces a slag on the wall... And call the number. You wouldn't really call the number to discuss it, or or write. or when some, you know, when someone writes under it. Mm. No, your mum's a slag, and someone goes, your dad's mm. a slag, and then you're just so it's this long thread of just nonsensical things of people that yeah. really are just Describing doing Twitter Basically, yeah, that's exactly how it works. It's nothing, it's, which is just for the sake of a reaction, which is one of the reasons we don't get along. But I tell you what, other I'd reason
1: say, we don't get along, Dana This might be leading to what you're to say is, is I, I think we see whenever you say that, I keep
0: thinking it's you two that don't get no, along. No, me and Dana get along and, famously, and then, and then then I'm thinking <laughs> what are they doing a podcast together for. Then? <laughs> Me and yeah.
1: Dave have 140 Boxman's plus holiday. hours of us getting along. It's fine. We've got the proof <laughs> everyone to call. Um, but I was going to point out the fact that I think if you, you know, when you read about like communist times and the way that America dealt with it, and the you know after the Second World War and how they would kind of go okay you know suddenly anyone who's tarred with a communist brush was like oh my god and it created an anxiety a very they, they, I can't remember exactly what they there's a name for it but they they created this anxiety around communism in America and I think we've got something similar McCarthyism yeah maybe, yeah. They, uh, maybe but they, they the thing is they basically created this anxiety in people as a you know as, as, like a public anxiety and I think that's what we've got now where like I remember having a conversation with someone a little while ago and I've been proved right, I should say, that I don't think uh, the Arsenal striker Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is that good, and and, and I think he probably, probably could do better than him. I was like, "How oh, are you doing?" But you know, the, the way, when I told someone this, they were like, I can't believe, you're like, they were almost insulted that I'd said this. Just like, yeah. You're not his dad, like, give it a break. Like, you know, you just, I'm just telling you my opinion. I think we could do better. But people are so on edge, Dane, aren't they? So on edge.
2: Yeah, well, it's, yeah, the projection of political identity, I guess, is that, uh, when people choose to, again, along these very rigid and binary lines, choose to uh, express having an affinity with or I- politically identifying with an ideology, then it seems nowadays that people feel they have to do that to the death. So for example, uh, we had a Baroness Saeed Awazi on, on the program who was a uh, conservative MP. Mm. But there's a lot of her platitudes, and you know in terms of what she describes as social conservatism, that I agree with. Hmm. And I'm sure there's certain points about you know uh, universal healthcare or you know climatological issues that she agrees with. So it proves clear that there is some level of there is some level where we can meet each other uh, in the centre. But what happens nowadays is that people are encouraged to be like, well, I vote Tory and therefore I must agree with every decision that hmm. they make and not even question it critically from yeah. my own perspective of my own moral standpoint. And that's not to say that you have, that's more of a cult than it is a political party. Well, it's it's
0: partly because political parties are a bit like football support, yes. football clubs. You belong to a tribe. And if someone attracts your tribe, you circle the wagons and you defend your tribe. And what I've found in, in presenting my radio show for, what, 12 years now, it, it's made me think a lot more about some of my previously held quite deep convictions and it means that on a lot of social issues particularly um i've i've changed I mean, some of them i have changed my mind others it's sort of knocked the rough edges off i mean when you for example i'll give you an example when you're talking about universal credit and i can come up with a complete justification for the theory of universal credit mm-hmm. but when you get three 55 year old men ringing you one after another and each of them crying on national radio, you kind of think there's something not working here. Yeah. And you can't just do what a politician does and then just come out with your pat answers about why universal credit is a really good thing. I mean, I'm in a very lucky position. I'm in a position where I can try and do something about it. So if somebody rings in in that situation, I can pick up the phone to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and say, look, I don't know if you know, mm. but this is happening and you need to do something about it. And very often, they then do do something about it. Um, and and there's lots of other sort of social... Th- well, I never thought, when I started on LBC, I never thought I would really enjoy doing all the sort of emotional phone-ins more than I enjoy doing the political phone-ins. So, whereas nowadays, if you gave me a choice, I'd choose a mental health phone-in, a grief phone-in uh, over anything to do with brexit or covid i mean if i never have to do another covid phone i should be very it it it
2: makes sense because i guess it means that you you are seeking a humanization from this discourse which is how discourse is supposed to work anyway and it's almost taking into account the context of someone's humanity is what normally used to allow us to see it from someone else's point of view yeah and i think when we have this same kind of discussions within social media when we can't necessarily see the person we're having a discussion with it removes that said humanity so, it's yeah. a lot harder for you to empathize. So, that makes a lot of sense to me, really. Um, yeah.
0: But you can actually have a reasonable discussion about very controversial issues if you all respect the rules of the game of debate. You and I met Dane on my program, Cross Question, which is kind of like question time, but on the radio. And I constantly get people saying, "Do you not think you should rename that program? Don't get very cross-questioned?" <laughs> because it, it, it's very rare that people have an absolute blazing row on it. It's not there. I don't do what question time does and wh- you, you sort of, well you don't have a live or, well you have the live audience at home, but you don't try and whip them up to ask re- to be really controversial. Uh, the panel isn't there to grandstand I mean, you you'll get one or two people that do sometimes but i try and do it with a light touch so everyone has their say and everyone can debate with each other and surely that's that's what it's all about that's what our entire public discourse should be all
2: about yeah yeah oh no definitely uh, especially within a one that prides itself on allowing for uh democracy in the first place yeah. um but then i think maybe the problem is that because so much of our uh insight and perception as a society is facilitated by uh automation or by technology we've kind of allowed those muscles to atrophy somewhat Mm. even even the ones that allows the etiquette of listening to somebody else because for example we now on the other side of it is that you can which i know is encouraged but you can now block somebody and that can uh you can now block somebody so it means if someone does challenge your ideas or they might even be able to factually prove you're incorrect. You can just ignore it and basically proceed with cognitive dissonance, which you wouldn't normally be able to do. I mean, you can put your hands over the ears and go la 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 la, but you can normally hear when someone's telling the truth. So I'd say so far as the uh, discursive aspect, that's probably why we can't get along. I'd say there's also, I always say follow the money. There's obviously somebody making money when people are are divided. Oh
1: yeah.
2: I think, you know, there's going back to the the, uh, example of football teams. There's, money to be made by selling a kit every year, but there's also money to be made by putting out almost, I guess the football team equivalent of propaganda where you can buy like, you know, you get the Millwall kind of bumper sticker where, and it's peeing on numbers. So don't don't swear, don't swear. <laughs> or you get a football team with a guy peeing on other mm. football teams and uh, yeah, sometimes yes. division is encouraged where, you know, if you can have a divided cost centre that means it's an individual revenue stream as opposed to when you have more of a collective that's not necessarily dependent well, on and, uh, external resources for them to realize their identity that there's a lot of money in that and so, and
1: i think the reality is why we can't all get along is phew, uh, it's quite tough to imagine a world where we do, where we do but well, but you know what re- that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying eh? that's the the,
0: the, the reality is we're we're human beings yeah. and we are not conditioned to get along with everyone we're in our in our sort of friendship circles. You have good friends, you have acquaintances, you have people you don't like, and you have sort of small enemies. That That is just the human being in us isn't it and it will always be that way i suppose it's it's just how ha- trying to condition how we engage with people that we either don't like or don't respect or just hate perfect
1: setup but, for my question ian thank you it? so
2: much <laughs> because I, don't, I, I don't even know what it is well, i have listened
1: to your show and uh, enjoy it and uh, you know you, if anyone wants to find it they can and uh you know there, there's many great youtube compilations as well available And you know what, I I, I suppose I don't feel this way just about your show, but uh, I feel this way about, you know, we've had James O'Brien on before, haven't we, Dane? Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I kind of Natasha Devon, Devon. Uh, yeah. and you know, I, I kind of you guys. Like, I mean, just to be completely blunt, fuck me, your patience is quite remarkable. <laughs> uh, just because <laughs> I like the people that come on our show, almost all of them, um, including you, I do like. Yeah, it. no, like it's just you know, you kind of it's tolerance, tolerance. You have to create a lot of tolerance. So my question is, uh, how do we, you, educate uh, the ignorant? Because that's the bit that I think comes back again and again. When you talk about a divided world, polarised, all this shit, which is just like, people are ignorant. And ignorant doesn't mean it's an insult. We've talked about this before, right, Dane? Like, I'm ignorant about things. People can educate me about them. That's cool. And if I've offended anyone beforehand, I can apologise. But you must do that week after week after week, Ian. Well,
2: does that make you an ignoramus, though, Howard? Because yeah, it's part of what makes someone... Or well, part of the a a characteristic of ignoramite is that you don't consider someone else's uh, feelings, or when someone is able to present you with an alternate viewpoint, you don't consider it. But no, it's it's a really good question, Ian, which I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your answer on because for me with Howard, I, I always try to get a bit more f- so philosophical because who are we who are we define as ignorant? Because is ignorance in itself subjective, or is there like a or can we assume there is like a blanket? idea we all have or a unanimous idea we have for what ignoramus is because Ian you must have a wealth of literally years of recordings to pull on from this well
0: I think there are lots of stereotypes that we can deploy here about ignorance in that that there will be a stereotype thing that you think somebody with a working-class accent is more ignorant than someone Mm. with a posh accent. Now, that is very often not the truth at all. Mm -hmm. We think that Americans are very uncultured people. Well, I don't know how many Americans you know, but most of the Americans I know are far more cultured than most of the British people I know. Um, So I think we have to be careful about assuming ignorance. And a lot of people... Are not as interested in the wider world as maybe the three of us are. Mm. Not everyone is interested in politics, mm. for instance, which I find bizarre and weird. But because politics affects all our lives, so you think well, people ought to be interested in it. But most people get on with their everyday lives and don't worry. They might watch the news at ten, not necessarily every day, and sort of so they've got a vague idea of what's going on in the world. But most people do not feel the need to. Uh, engage in the sort of Westminster Bowl issues that I do. Now, I've never really thought of my role as a radio presenter as one of being particularly educational, but I think there are times when it, it is. For example, when I first heard about the plight of the Uyghur Muslims, I was thinking, well, why is no one talking about this? And so I made a little 20-minute documentary about it, which, I mean, LBC doesn't really do documentaries, but I thought this was such an important thing. And this was back in, I don't know, 2018. Yeah, I think it was 2018. And it, it didn't really feature in the news at all. And so I then did an hour phone-in on it, thinking we might not get a single call. But it was just remarkable, the reaction to that. Hmm. And I tend to do that. For example... I don't know how much both of you know about the Indian caste system. I'd heard of it, didn't really know much about it, thought it was a bit like the class system, but the class system on acid. Um, So I did a phone-in where I just said to British Indians, right, call in and tell me about it, educate me. So you can have these sort of teach-in hours where I, as the presenter, I haven't done an an awful lot of reading up on it because I'm I'm as ignorant as Mm. most other people listening. And it's remarkable how... Much you can get from that. I had a guy the other night. We were talking about the whole Russia-Ukraine thing, and Tom in Brighton phoned in, and he gave us basically the history of Ukraine in about six minutes. Hmm. And my text and tweet screen in front of me went absolutely mental because we said, "Oh, we want to hear more from him." So I just put our forty-minute podcast. I phoned him up after the show and I said, "Look, do you want to do a podcast with me?" And we only put it up yesterday, and I think it's already had about 10,000 listens. Sure. So that, there is an educational aspect to what I do. I think the other thing is you've got to be aware that you I'm not a shock jock. Um, I, I can lose my temper from time to time on mm. air, and I have done. But if you do it all the time, which a, a traditional shop jock would do, mm. would do it every single program, I think how boring is that? Mm. If I do it once a month, people sit up and take notice and think, oh, what's got into him today? And it can be very effective um, in in some ways if you are very angry about something. I mean, there's a few things about sort of what Boris Johnson has done over the past few months where I I have got quite angry. Well, I think I heard you get
1: quite annoyed at a lady calling you in to talk about... I mean, basically, there's a whole bucket of people to now put in the, uh, the bracket of COVID... D- a deniership? I don't know. I mean, it's not. It's not just. I mean, but like, obviously, COVID has been politicized. That's not a. I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. What isn't politicized uh, generally by mm. uh, politicians when they get something? But like, uh, there is some absolute nonsense, like ignorance, <laughs> p- spouted by a percentage of the population about this pandemic. And you know how yeah. I've heard you lose it with people, not, not lose it, <laughs> it's just like. And I'm just like, I don't even know if I could be that tolerant, you know.
0: Like, I think I just kind of, I don't know, tough. What you've got to do is divide, is to work out whether somebody is being an anti-vax propagandist or whether somebody is just sceptical about it. And if if you're sceptical about it, you can have a good debate and I can put my point of view forward. They can put their point of view forward. I can try and reassure them. And I've had people who've listened to my programmes and email me and say, look, I'm really not sure about this vaccine. I'm going to hear what you say, but... And I will try and respond to them and try and persuade them to do it. And but if if they are just I mean, there's, I'll give you give you an example. Christmas 2020, Paul in Kingston rings in and, and says, "Oh, I don't believe in all this lockdown rubbish. Um, I'm having my Christmas Eve party. I'm having 24 people around my house. And I said, well, have you thought about the consequences of that? Not necessarily for you, but the consequences for their families. So your, your best friend, Colin, comes around. Um, he gets COVID from one of your other guests, goes home, gives it to his wife, gives it to his family, gives it to his grandmother. She dies. That's on you, mate. Mm-hmm. And I did really <laughs> lose my temper with this guy. Um, and he was completely unrepentant. And he phones he phones in occasionally now and still is. Um, I, mean, I, can't, I cannot be doing with people like that. And I can't just sit there and have some calm conversation with somebody who is... And he, The thing is, he wasn't thick. Right. That's what got me. He clearly so it's, isn't it's a it's thick cho- person. It's, cho-
2: it's chosen ignorance. Oh, oh, he's, well, I don't know oh, how actually. you describe it. But,
0: um, I mean, you, you, there have been occasions when... I think I probably lost my temper
2: and shouldn't have done.
0: Mm-hmm. But look, in 12 years you are you, not going to be you're not going to get it right I, every I time. I, mean, but- I
2: don't think I don't think that there needs to be there should be this uh, such a, this idea that because you're the presenter or mediator that you're going to remain uh stoic and mm. static if you hear something that is, you know, completely um ignorant but, like but as I mean, a human I, being like you have a brain it has a yeah. com- comprehensive function if you hear something that is nonsensical and in some cases could lead to the the harm and loss of other sentient beings. Your body's going to react like that's that yeah. should be quite natural, and I think it's it's not something that you should have to remain. But it, it is in.
0: it is a regular thing though that you get people texting or emailing and saying, "I don't know how you remain so calm with that yeah. person." Well, it's like I mean, when Tony Blair said that, look, people who don't take the vaccine are idiots. I kind of agree with them, but you don't persuade someone to take a vaccine by I'm insulting an idiot. them. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I, mean, I think anti-vax people are, are far worse than idiots, but if you're sceptical for, for a genuine reason, fine, have a debate about it, and that can be, that can be a calm debate.
2: Yeah, the problem, the problem is as well is that there are a number of amenities that tend to facilitate ignorance now as well. Number one, uh, the introduction of the term fake news into a uh, public vernacular, I think, one. has caused a lot of problems, as has alternate facts, as first coined yeah. by Kellyanne Conway, because what it means is that you can present people with irrefutable evidence to the contrary of their beliefs, yeah. and they can dismiss it, which can encourage... that. ignorance And when, when the leader of the free world is doing the same thing, then the example's being set. And I think you make a very valid point, Ian, about uh, how class, uh, classism... Uh, is involved in terms of our perceptions of ignorance as a term because I think for example maybe people who are working class maybe uh, are pressured maybe to have certain platitudes our fear of being perceived as ignorant or um, and, and that's the same with all of us so a lot of times sometimes the groups in which we politically identify or the tribes that we uh, claim uh, that we belong to may uphold certain, certain beliefs and part of that means that they have to be ignorant to others So, you know, uh, institutional religion or Abrahamic religion, for example, I find it paradoxical for you to be discussing the idea of worshipping an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present being who at the same time hasn't been able to stop another religion from gaining 1.3 billion (laughs) followers. Mm. Because it's kind of like this God, you know, you hear any Abrahamic religion when they describe the nature of their God is like... God can do anything. Well, then do I need to be engaged in a Holy war against people that believe something else then? Cause mm. by the sounds of it, he's kind of worked it out. Like I feel <laughs> like something that's able to reach into oblivion and pull out life and sentience and all of the aspects of matter down to the atom probably doesn't care if two guys marry. Mm. thank thank god for that is all i can say yeah exactly when you when you compare like the the scale of these two this phenomena like this is a star exploding and come a new one coming to life these are two people that want to spend the rest of their lives together it feels like there's bigger fish to fry
0: Mm. yeah i I think the the thing about class also is that we we always make instant judgments about people we can Mm -hmm. do it depending on their background their class or their accent i mean if you think about different accents we we tend to think of a, a sort of a, a moderate Scottish accent is somebody that you can really trust. That's yeah. why a lot of call centres are, have encouraged people from Scotland to to be employed. Geordie, I think, is the same. Yeah, Whereas if true. you think about Liverpool and Birmingham, we make very different judgments about those, don't But,
2: we? Uh, but that's, uh, that's been engineered Quite as well, rightly, I think. But... <laughs> yeah, uh, in many ways. But I think that's also been engineered as well. I think I have a joke where I say, you know, it's funny that uh, people trust working class uh, accents... To build and repair their homes, but not their bodies, and vice versa, yeah. because like no one's going to really listen to a working-class oncologist, no matter how smart they might be, yeah, and no one's that really going to true. listen to a middle-class plasterer. <laughs> so it's a—it's
1: uh, such a challenging time for these subjects now, because you end up in a situation where you know you. Just, I just think, oh, here's some people talk, and I just think, God, there must be a way to sit you down and just go, kind of like, so here's why you. Do You think wrong. this
0: is all being a bit blurred now because, I mean, for example, 20 years ago, you would never have heard anyone with any regional accent reading the news on the radio or, the, or on the television, whereas now it's almost obligatory to have a regional accent. And being the age I am, there's something that I find, and I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I still want my newsreaders to speak sort of BBC English mm. in a way because it's got the authority I don't really want a Northwestern accent reading the news, which makes me. I know everyone listening is going to think, oh my God, how could he say that? But I'm just, I'm just being honest. And it, I suppose it's how
2: your, yeah, your brain's learned to associate. Yeah, your I brain's learned to associate it. I mean, even my own aesthetic versus how I speak and think. A lot of people find that to be quite conflicting a lot of time as well because people don't expect me if I show up on stage with a black hoodie or in a tracksuit to speak how I do. So, or even if I go to America and I I perform on stage in America, there's also there's always this grace period of about a minute where I have to watch everyone's jaw on the floor, being like, "How the fuck (laughs) is that voice coming out of that body?" So, I'm I'm more aware of it as well. So, I think ignorance, how you know, to that point can be a, a large uh, a function of conditioning hmm. in the same way that if you you know if i if a pilot speaks at a very high octave and sound like bobcat goldwaith for example then you probably wouldn't feel that particularly calm about that particular person um hmm. so i think there is uh because it, there's a certain level of cadence that you might associate with certain occupations hmm. and, and and vice so and so yeah, I think it's, the way... It's, it's
0: all it, about expectation, isn't it? What, yeah. what was a programme I was watching the other day? And there was this very sort of suave-looking guy, probably about 30, sort of chiselled looks, really good-looking, sort of big black hair. And I expected him to have quite a deep voice.
2: And he started being
0: Hello, how are you? <laughs> I said, oh, my
2: God. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot of, yeah, it's down to, down to perception. And uh, I guess ignorance in that instance, Howard, is, is very... I guess it's a more a milder prejudice, really. Mm. And, 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 and because of it, a lot of comedians, when they begin their career, tend to have their opening line be, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> because everyone is aware that uh, people tend to form their perception of you based on mm. your outward appearance. And so a large amount of comedy, where for most people's debut five minutes is about them either confirming, denying, or subverting those preconceptions that audiences have of them.
1: It's very interesting. So,
2: it's very interesting,
1: that, and it's a yeah. uh, it, it's a subject that's man going to rage on for quite a long time. But Dane, over to you, man. It's the last question of the of the show. Uh, you going to follow along this, or you going to go off?
2: I, I feel like I'm I'm taking into this is this is a uh, a combination of taking into account some of, some of the points of both of those questions, and also uh, Ian's illustrious uh, career as an author. And I, what is do you want to, because We've spoken about people not getting along and uh, ignorance. And I think a lot of the time, this is uh, the result of how people are led, what's suggested to them, um, how propaganda works can create uh, ignorance as well as polarise people. So I my question really is, in your opinion, Ian, who is the worst leader in the 21st century, of the 21st century, I should say? in your opinion
0: what a competition what in this country or
2: internationally
0: um both you say both yeah <laughs> well, let's, both well,
2: let's, go, let's go for uk what? and then go abroad is, uh, in in that you know when we talk about ignorance and we talk about not being getting along who is the person who has throughout their career in the 21st century led us, led their their people or their constituency or their followers down either a moral sewer or a financial black hole or just caused irreparable irreparable damage to the social fabric of that society and left nothing but a, the equivalent of a skid mark on said social fabric. <laughs> so in the 21st century, as opposed to the 20th, because I, I was honestly going to say, well, it's a bit
0: difficult to look beyond Hitler and Stalin, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, they, they um, I think in the 21st century, I mean, my first instinct was Donald Trump. My second instinct was Vladimir Putin. But I think the one I'm going to go for is Kim Jong-un. <laughs> <laughs> because if you, if you look at the condition of the people in North Korea, I mean, it is miles worse than anything that Vladimir Putin has imposed on the people of Russia. Mm. Um, it is certainly miles worse than anything Donald Trump imposed on the people of America. Because if you look at America domestic, if you just look at it from an economic point of view, Donald Trump was actually quite successful until the pandemic started. Um, so I think, I mean, I think it is quite difficult to look. I mean, I would love to go to North Korea. Um, I, I've started watching.
2: <laughs> you, I mean, you can go one. Day. I know you can. <laughs> no, I think I,
0: I'm going. I might yeah. try one day. Yeah. But I've started watching South Korean political dramas. Mm. They did a um, version of Designated Survivor. That's what got me into it. And it's much better than the American one. And then I somebody recommended another series called Crash Landing on You. Mm. And it was all about a South Korean businesswoman who was quite young. She went paragliding one day and there was a tornado and she got swept up in it and she landed in North Korea. And the whole 16 episodes is about her new life in North Korea, what happened to her, and how she eventually got back to South Korea. And, I mean, I don't know how accurate it was in its portrayal of life in North Korea, but if it was anything like that, then, I mean, it's a dystopian society in many ways, Hmm. and with incredible poverty. I mean, we use the word poverty in this country in a way that I don't think we actually even know what the word means, where poverty in this country means that, Generally, the welfare state is helping you try to get out of poverty. There's no welfare state in North Korea. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, I, I would go for Kim Jong-un internationally. In, in this country, the worst leader of the 21st century? Um, I'm, Well, you mean somebody who's held power? I mean, I was going to say Jeremy Corbyn, because I think he just... No, there's going to be a leader. It doesn't say you
2: have to hold a position of power. Yeah.
0: I, mean, I, I, I gen- Jeremy Corbyn, is, I know Jeremy Corbyn a bit. Um, Before he became leader of the Labour Party, he was the Labour MP. He and Barry Gardner were two Labour MPs. If we were stuck for a Labour guest, we'd ring them up at the bottom of the list. And they would generally be quite happy to come in the studio. And um, I had some really good discussions with Jeremy Corbyn. But the moment he became leader... Um, He was never allowed by Seamus Mill, and his press guy, to appear on my programme on the basis that presumably I must have been a fascist or something. And now, of course, he's not leader. He comes on all the time. But I I think he was a terrible leader for the Labour Party at a time when it would have benefited politics had there been a good leader of the Labour Party to keep the Conservatives on the straight and narrow in many ways. Mm. Um, And I think he has a lot of responsibility for the fact that Labour... Uh, will, I mean, if they did win the next election, they would have been out of power for 14 years. There are lots of other people to blame for that as well. Um, but he, there were four wasted years under him. It, it's still, I mean, they, they haven't recovered from it yet, and it's no. going to take them some, some more time to do so. So I think I would go for him. I mean, look, people are always going to say, well, why haven't you gone for Boris Johnson, blah, blah, blah. Well, that, I mean, I could go for Boris Johnson. I think if you look at the Conservative leader's in the 21st century, I mean, is he—he's better than Ian Duncan Smith in that he won an election with a, an 80-seat majority. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you look at some of the ways he's performed in government, and you could easily make an argument for him, I guess. Yeah, I mean,
1: no shortage of candidates.
0: No, no I mean, there, I, will, there yeah. always will be. Whatever, frankly, whatever period of history you look at. There yeah. will always be people who haven't stepped up to the plate.
2: Well, as long as human beings don't take res- their own personal responsibilities to guide their own lives, there's always going to be able someone to step into that vacuum and
0: yeah,
2: yeah lead them uh, talk, progressively talk or aggressively. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a really it's a hard one for me with the Jer- with the Jeremy Corbyn thing because ideologically, like Bernie Sanders, I love what the men stand for. I think, I feel like, yeah, well... I just find it hard to explain. I feel like Jeremy Corbyn was like a boots-on-the-ground kind of MP rather than a commons person. I think he'd have been very good in terms of, you know, for demonstration, in terms of galvanising voters, in terms of... So that's
0: all he was about. All, yeah. all he was good at was protesting. It wasn't really... I think he would have viewed the prospect of being
2: prime minister with horror. Well, in that case, I don't think why, he why, it, yeah. why are you leader of the opposition then? That That's what you should be aiming for. Yeah. I mean, who who would have been... At the time when he was on the ballot... Who was he, who were the who were his closest rivals of? Well,
0: let me tell you a story about that. Um, it was Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, um, Liz Kendall. Those mm. were the other three. And I had all four of them in the studio to do a sort of hustings. Mm. And the other three were being a bit boring. They wouldn't give any real answers. And Jeremy Corbyn just kept saying, I mean, I may have disagreed with what he said, but at least he gave answers. And there was one question that that a listener came up with, would you put Ed Miliband in your shadow cabinet? So I went to Andy Burnham. He said, oh, well, it's too, it's too early to think about some things like that. I, I'm not gonna name my shadow cabinet on your programme, Ian. I said, Well, the, the the listeners ask the question, it's not me asking the question. Ivat Cooper and Ms. Kendall both gave similar answers. And Jeremy Corbyn says, Yes, I would put him in my shadow cabinet. I'd make him shadow environment secretary. And I almost exploded at that. And I said, see, and I sort of pointed to the other three. I said, see, that's why he's winning. That's why he's wiping the floor with you, Lot, because he'll give a straight answer to a straight question. Yeah. And we all know what happened then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean he was he was a populist and then and then I guess forgot that he his remit increased exponentially when he became the leader of the party. And I think yeah. that's... A th- and it goes back to what you were saying before about us all getting along. There are probably people within the Labour Party who would be, you know, more demonstrat- demonstratively uh, socialist like Jeremy Corbyn and be a protester and there might be people like Ed Miliband who are able to function more effectively within uh, Parliament and be able to have discourse and people that are much better at acting as a party or in the drive to be Prime Minister, I think... Um, maybe he wasn't best suited for that but I, yeah i, I obviously I'm a fan of Jeremy Corbyn's way of thinking but yeah maybe as leader it didn't necessarily work out kim jong un however i mean there's no surprise to that because there's no there's no his only nepotism is the only uh qualification he is or i guess the only merit by which he's realized his position as supreme leader um and that's never a great thing if you're only mm. uh I guess your only right to succession is, well, my dad had the job first, so now it's my turn. <laughs> yeah, so it right. can to be very problematic, as as George Bush Jr. Uh, proved to us at the start of the century.
1: Just because you mentioned uh, that bloke who was at the least president. he was
2: elected. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, that's true. Uh,
1: just because you mentioned that bloke who was, uh, you know, the president in America, uh, you know, the one I'm talking about. You uh, can say his name, Howard. I'm not sure I can say his name. <laughs> what happens... Uh, if he, how do you have you had people calling in and talking about if he comes back for twenty twenty four Ian is that is that something that you've been keeping aware of because uh, um, they're, well, they're suggesting it's actually
0: looking quite probable yeah I, I can't really think it'll happen but you you never know um, I mean Donald Trump is I mean I suppose he's made made a living out of being fascinating in many ways I remember I interviewed Donald Trump in twenty twelve before he became president. It was a 10-minute phone call interview. I think he was coming over to the Excel Center to do a speech at a business conference. And I'd actually, when he became president, I'd forgotten that I'd interviewed him. So unmemorable was it. <laughs> and someone reminded me. So I went back and listened to it. And if you listen to it now, it's a perfectly normal interview with a perfectly normal human being. Mm-hmm. I want to know what happened in the four years between 2012
2: and 2016. I know some, one, of, I know one of the things that happened. Did. He uh was the butt of Barack Obama's jokes at the correspondence dinner. Yeah, if you true. go back and watch that yeah, and watch I've, his face, you'll yeah. see when the seed is planted. Yeah. I, I I genuinely believe a large amount of Donald Trump's um, aspirations for the highest office are based on what happened that day. I think uh, I watched, I read the book, uh, Fire and Fury, and mm. uh, people, like even psychiatrists who have studied Donald Trump have been like, this guy, this man rarely experiences joy. He doesn't smoke or drink. He pretty much only eats like cheeseburgers. There's an interview with his mother where she says his older brother uh, had Lego and he had Lego and he kept pestering his brother (laughs) for the Lego. I know this him, And he used Superglue and stuck the Lego together so that nobody could use it. (laughs) That is is a trait of his personality. So I would definitely say he's definitely up there for one of the worst leaders of the 21st century. One of the reasons why I say that, Ian, is because if nothing else – and so as somewhat of a, a non-partisan and a cynic, I don't understand why a billionaire would need to become president in the first place. Hmm. Because if you want to affect policy, that's what lobbying's for. Well, it, there's the, the
0: narcissistic element, which, exactly. I, I mean, most people have to one degree or another. Um, certainly in politics they do. Certainly in the business world they do. And I think he is the ultimate narcissist. I Absolutely. Mean, Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to deny. I mean, I have an ego. Anybody that sits in front of a microphone for three hours and talks to the nation is going to have an ego. So I'm not going to sort of say that um, it takes one to know one, then. so you, it takes <laughs> one to know one. So you can, <laughs> yeah, but you're very good pathology. Yeah. Well, you, all right, well, you're one as well because you stand Oh, up, you, you stand on a stage, and it's all. And, sort of, and I say, I'm the funniest me, person in the room. room. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. I'm the funniest. Not only, not only hope all looking at me. Hopefully You are. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to think so, but usually, yeah, usually more often than not. But yeah, there's definitely a amount of ego, which is why I can, if someone's like a somewhat of demagoguery, is something I can see. So I, I feel like, yeah, in terms of leadership, and and it's what you want to. Inco- I guess, and it's it's the distinction between leadership and management because those are, those are two very distinct entities. Le- but leadership Do
0: you when you're um, when you do things like when you came on Cross Question the other night? Obviously, this is that is not a comedy program. But I have found in the past that comedians that come on it, I think they they feel a pressure to be funny mm-hmm. um, and actually very often they're, they're not when they, when they, I mean, it's like anybody, when you try to be funny, exactly, you make too much of an effort and it, it doesn't always come off. It's always very contrived. Yeah. Um, and so I, I mean, I don't know what Robbie said to you, my producer before you came on, but I always say to um, people in comedy that I know that come on I said. Don't bother trying to be funny. It's yeah. not a comedy program. If you've got a good line, fine, do it. Yeah. But we're not. I'm not expecting you to make us laugh every five minutes.
2: No, yeah, it, it didn't. It didn't occur to me at all. And I, and maybe that's part of when I was beginning to, I guess, hone my voice in comedy. I struggled to write stuff that was just funny. It was really stuff that I was like, this is a esoteric truth that makes sense. So this yeah. will work. And 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 I guess it's. Rather than trying to make it a contrived performance, I was always trying to mimic say, the same kind of conversational sensibilities I have when I'm talking to people normally. And the laughter comes in a regular timing anyway, and there's, there's an of element of rapport building there. So, which again is something that, from what I don't imagine Kim Jong Un does with these mean people, you know. But then again, I suppose, you know, you, you consider his upbringing. Like I said, there's no real qualification. So mm-hmm. I think he might just be a poor leader because he's had no, he's not really had any training as to, you know, when you think about something as a task as big as running a country or being a supreme leader, any one of us would think that you honing that competency comes with trial and error and mm. failures, which come with lessons as a result. But when you are the supreme leader of North Korea, you don't really get told you're fucking up on the do on the journey. Yeah. So there's no opportunity for you to refine your yeah, method. Nobody ever and goes. Kim, can
0: I have a quick word? Yeah, yeah and and that. I mean, if you, if you were right, if I was writing a book about leadership, I think that's one of the main points I would make. You've got to enable people to talk to you and challenge you. Yeah. And I think that's where Boris Johnson is going wrong in mm-hmm. a way and that he hasn't got enough big beasts around him, particularly in his cabinet, let alone his advisors who will say, you know what, this isn't going to work. We shouldn't be doing it. It's very rare that that seems to happen. And I think that happens in the business world. I mean, it happens in the media a lot. Mm. I mean, if you are a real, really big-name celebrity, everybody cows to you, everybody wants to be your friend, mm. and people don't say, you know what, you're being a dick.
2: Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the emperor's new clothes. And uh, yeah. I think I think that's that really showed the lack of efficacy that Donald Trump has a leader is because he had for a very long time enjoyed the privilege of being an authoritarian in the position in power without being able to have mm. the negative words said about him or not be aware of it. Um, and becoming a civil servant, I think gave him the complex that you're describing before. He seemed the unremarkable regular person in 2012. I think when it got to the point where you think about 2012, I guess social media wasn't as advanced as it is now. Mm. Whereas then I don't believe Donald Trump as a billionaire who owns a series of hotels on The Apprentice. This is somebody that's not used to being told that they're not good at their job. And that was, and I think the problem is that he forgot that the president involves you being a civil servant, which leaves him open to scrutiny and to yeah. crit- and to critique.
0: He's a bit like Corbyn in many ways. And I don't think he ever really wanted to be president. Yeah, he, did, he, was, a, he was a kind of... Uh, I don't think he believed he would be president. And when he was president he hadn't got the background to enable him to do the job normally. I mean, sometimes you do need it. Sometimes a disruptor is a good thing. But when you're president of the United States, it can also be a very dangerous thing. Yeah,
2: especially because I think it works in a very, almost in like an opposite way, in that there may not just be, Kim Jong-un may not be the supreme leader, but there may be an interest of generals and military and economic interests that are able to use him as a pawn. Yeah. Um, In the same way that, like, I think one of the main things about Donald Trump is that he allowed people like, you know, someone like Mike Pence or Steve Bannon, these are people that probably, Kellyanne Conway, are people that probably wouldn't have realised a position within authority had they not had somebody like Donald Trump. Because what happened after that was that anyone who did challenge him, there was a serious, like his original uh, White House administration... I mean, it was more like a hospice the amount of people that disappeared in like the first term. So,
1: well, I don't think we can uh, crescendo any better with this episode than the comparison between Corbyn and Trump. Uh, which Ian beautifully did, but it's been a great one, has not it, Dane? Very fluid, oh, oh, a lovely expect, show. I expected no different. Ian's and, uh, got such a silky voice as well. I didn't I kind of forgot how. Oh, it's just
2: leading, leading by example that people can have varying ideas of people they like and support, and you can still have a. Structured in a moderate conversation. So I, I love I
0: love that comment about my voice because I always think my voice is quite soporific. Which, if you're on a radio show, unless you're doing an overnight show, it's not necessarily an advantage. Yeah. And we, we had a um, one of the management at LBC when she came in 2012. She said, "Right, we've got to do something with your voice." I think, "How dare you?" <laughs> and she would let she'd go be behind the glass when I'd start the program. And she goes, you've got to inject more pace into it. Because at that point, I, I was just about to start presenting The Drive show. And it is quite a pacey show. Mm. And um, she would literally scream through the glass at me just as I was about to go on air. Big bollocks! <laughs> just as, and of course, I would laugh. And then that,
2: and I would then start off in a really pacey way. Right. And of course, our listeners find out where they can find out more about your good works, please.
0: Well, I'm on LBC Radio, which you can go on DAB or on Global Player or all sorts of different places uh, between 7 and 10 p.m. Monday to Thursday. Um, I do the for the Many podcast with Jackie Smith, which usually drops every Saturday lunchtime. Um, and I do the various other podcasts, uh, which you can find if you search on whatever podcast app you use. So I've got another book out now called The Presidents. It's all, uh, all the 46 different presidents, one essay on each. Uh, so it's a really
2: good book to dip into. And um,
0: I've got another
2: one coming out on Kings and Queens next year. Lovely. Good to hear. Monarchistic and republican at the same time. Again, two different ideologies coexisting very peacefully in the mind of Ian Dale. Um, it's been a real pleasure, Ian. Um, I hope that I can lean upon you to satisfy said um, aspirations about being an LBC presenter. <laughs> I'm going to work on my patience in the meantime, though. I know I'm definitely going oh, to need
1: it,
2: dane Definitely. <laughs> but this has been a real pleasure, Ian. Thank you so much.
1: Is. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTiste. Our guest was Ian Dale. You can follow Ian on Twitter and Instagram at Ian Dale. The show was produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by audio culture. You can follow audio culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQEPodcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything.